Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message. We hope that it's encouraging and helpful to you no matter where you are on your journey of faith. We at Hope Church want everyone to have a chance to experience the rich love of Jesus. We are inclusive and affirming towards everyone. And if you're looking for a place to experience a caring Christian community, we would love to have you to visit. You can go to hopechurchrc.org to connect with us. Thanks again for listening. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, Hope that everybody has had a good week. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 2 today, looking at verses 13 through 22. Uh, We have, what, right about three weeks until Easter. And uh, so we're kind of in the life of Jesus moving toward that that Good Friday where uh, he was crucified for our sins. And so we're looking at a passage in John 2, and I'll try not to get too far ahead of myself. Um, In John chapter 2, we're looking at an event that happens in all four Gospels, although John places it in a slightly different order than the others. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But as we get started, I would like you to turn to your neighbor or someone or just talk to yourself um, and tell them about a phobia that you have. If you're if you're brave and, and you're willing to talk about it, um, if not, just make one up. They might not ever know. All right. <laughs> Anybody have any that they want to throw out? Yes, ma'am. Arachnophobia. What's that? Fear of spiders. Does it matter like what type of spider? Okay. All right. So pretty much any spider because you never know. <laughs> that's, that's my feeling. <laughs> All spiders on sight. Anybody else? <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't be drinking after people. You never know what... what People... Yeah, anyways, that's nasty. People people don't drink cleanly, all right? They just don't. Yes, Matthew, you got another one? A flying bug. Any flying bug. Because you know what they do? They, like, fly in your face. Oh, my word. Me and Natalie are like, we're connecting on a deep level here. Abel, did you have one, bud? What you got? Snakes. I don't know what the, the, the first part of that is, but snake phobia. Yes, I'm down with that. Kenzie is not afraid of snakes. She will pick them up. Like, she's picked up a couple of little garter snakes in the yard. Yeah. Yeah, Jaden picked up a snake before. All right, Kenzie. Rats, ratophobia, ratatouille. So you, you didn't like the movie Ratatouille? That's a, there's all kinds of health violations when you talk about with that movie, anyways, with the the rat in the hair and the hair in the anyways. So any other phobias? Walmartophobia. That's a good one. Oh my word! Oh my word! Heights are my thing. Like that's my that's my big thing. I'm scared of lots of new things. I find out uh, every year as a parent, I'm more and more afraid of the future. We won't go there. Um, Abel, one more. What you got, bud? You're afraid of monsters. Abel, I, let me tell you what. I am so glad that werewolves and zombies and those things are not real because this boy obsesses over them as if they were. Like, it's crazy. And natural disasters... Like he's all, he's always asking, 
are we safe from volcanoes? I'm like, dude, there's not one within a thousand square miles. We're good. As far as I know. All right. Thank you for, thank you for your bravery and for sharing with us and with everybody. Uh, I have a phobia called acrophobia. It's a fear of heights. Um, if you ever see me more than a few feet off the ground, pray for me because I'm sweating. I'm really scared. The few times as a homeowner that I've had to get up on the roof to do something or another, um, or even I remember as a kid getting up with my dad to help clean out the gutters, put up Christmas lights, whatever it was, it's like I'm up there like shaking. The ladder's shaking as I'm going up. It's it's a big deal. Um, it's I try to avoid heights if at all possible. Uh, but why do you think these phobias have such an effect on us? I want to say I want to. Want to give an answer, a possible answer? Why, like, why do they affect us at such a, a deep part of our, of our being? Well, there's lots of, lots of answers for that. They don't make us feel safe, right? I mean, that's part of it. Part of it's, we talked a little bit last week about how we're wired for survival and our, our fight, flight, or freeze kicks in, and that's part of that, these phobias. For me, the fear of heights is more about the fear of falling and then about the sudden stop at the end. It's not necessarily the falling. The falling could be cool, right? You know, I, I look at people that like skydive. I would never do it. I look at people that skydive because I also have a fear of things failing. Like I, I rarely ever sit in these metal chairs like that. I've just been, I've been tricked too many times. So it, it, I just don't. Anyways, uh, it, and so I also have a fear of the parachute failing and the backup parachute failing. Anyways, um, but when I get up high, everything in my mind and my body is telling me, get down, get back down, put your feet on the solid ground. This is not where you need to be, dude. I can't even stand close to the edge of like a balcony or, or people talk about, you know, going up to like the Empire State Building and was it the, that thing you can put your head on the glass? And no, I would never. The glass bridge over the Grand Canyon? No, thank you. Not for me. No. <laughs> yeah. I, there's just this fear of like, if I look down, I feel like I'm, I'm going with my eyes and my body's just going to follow like I'm a big slinky and it's just not, I can't. <laughs> Is it not? You're like a slinky. You put a slinky at the top of the stairs. I feel like I am. You put a slinky at the top of the stairs and you start it and it's going to go. I feel like if I look down, my head's going and then everything else is falling with falling it. I can't. I can't. Yes, ma'am. Yo, bungee jumping? No, no. Nay, no. Nay to the no. Absolutely not. Because our bodies and our brains are hardwired with some systems that are designed to help keep us safe. Talked about the fight, flight, or freeze. We also have reflexes built into our muscles that can help us move faster than we normally would. For example, when you touch something hot, your, uh, the nerves on the end of your fingers can tell your muscles to retract faster than your brain realizes that it's hot, right? Because the, the signal travels up your, up your arm to your brain and your, and your brain goes back and tells your muscles, hey, move away. But there, there's like a shortcut that your body can do to help you get away. We're hardwired to stay safe. But in our lives, we experience many times where our safety feels threatened. Maybe it's a physical harm, like you see a bunch of people running, 
away from a thing, and maybe you want to start running too. You ain't got time to figure out what it is. I'm just going to turn around and start running. Sometimes we can see and understand the danger and know to avoid it, like with snakes, like Kenzie talked about. I see a snake. I'm like, you stay over there. I'll stay over here. We're good. I'm not one that like, you know, the only good snake is a dead snake. They can hang out. That's fine. Just stay away from me. That's all I ask. Um, we can usually see danger before we come in contact with it. And before we come into contact with it. But sometimes the danger is sudden. It appears out of nowhere. And it can, or it can come from unexpected places. Sometimes we can be unsafe by people that, or we can feel unsafe or be hurt by people that we love. People who we thought we were safe, who we thought were safe. Maybe we've been uh, the ones to hurt someone who thought that we were safe. It can come out of nowhere. It's unexpected. Um, in our passage today, we're going to look at a time in Jesus' life where his actions appear less than safe. And, and he's a little unhinged. He's acting a little crazy. And as we talk about it, I hope that we can realize the truth that um, following Jesus isn't always safe. It may call us to do some things that make us uncomfortable or anxious, but it's always good. Let's read in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. It says, The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? What's the proof? Why are you doing this? What's your justification? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now this is a puzzling story in a few different ways. One aspect that makes it a little bit puzzling is the timing of it. When did this actually happen? Because in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they put this at the beginning kind of of the week of, of, of the, sorry, of the Passion Week, right? The week right before Jesus died. They put it kind of at the beginning of that week. But John puts this as his second kind of big thing. The first one was turning the water into wine at the wedding. And then this is number two. John's like, look, Jesus is coming out of the gate and he's coming in hot. He's, he's chasing people out of the temple and turning over tables. Uh, so, so which one is it? Well, we don't really know. Is it two separate events or is it the same event just recorded? We don't really know. And that's okay. Why would, why would John place it differently though? Um, I think John kind of wanted us to be a little bit in awe of Jesus. A little bit of shock and awe, right? Uh, and kind of set him up as kind of an unexpected Messiah, which Jesus definitely was. If you've ever seen the movie Megamind, anybody ever seen that movie? 
If you have not, please go watch it. It's one of my all-time favorites. Megamind is the is the villain turned hero. And at one point, if you've seen the movie, you remember he he <laughs> so he became the hero of the city. He didn't want to, uh, but he kind of had to when the the hero that he created turned into a villain, and then he had to go fight him. And at one point, the guy that he created uh, said, this town's not big enough for two supervillains. And uh, Megamind said, oh, you're a villain, all right, just not a super one. And he says, what's the difference? And after like this big, you know, thing, the, the, all these like robots that he had made his own face, and there's fireworks and explosions, and he said, presentation, right? That's kind of, not that Jesus was a villain, but I think John was kind of wanting to maybe give a little bit of a theatrics here. Um, because Jesus defied expectations from the start. Uh, his author that I will, will frequent sometimes, Dan Clinenden, I'm probably butchering that last name, um, but Jesus says that Jesus is the great disruptor, and he is. But either way, approximately 100,000 people, or maybe more, I've seen estimates up to 300,000, would make the journey each year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is a remembrance of the time when the Jews celebrated God bringing them out of Egypt. It was the biggest holy day at the time, and is still celebrated by many around the world today. Now, part of the Passover was a requirement to offer an animal sacrifice. This animal sacrifice had to be without blemish, had to be like one of your very best, right? And, and because of the journey, I mean, these people would not bring their own animals to sacrifice because you just never know, right? Pack of wolves or coyotes or dogs or even, you know, your, your animal could like break a leg. Anything could happen. And, and so the, the temple, as a way to um, help the people, they would sell animals that were acceptable for sacrifice for the people that, that journeyed. And that's a great thing. But it kind of led to some other things. Because of a couple reasons, money had to be exchanged in order to buy the animals that you would need, and you would also need money to pay the temple tax. Well, Roman currency was not accepted at the temple. The, the main currency was not accepted. It's almost like uh, if you went to Walmart and they said, okay, your total is $20 and $20, whatever, and you handed them uh, uh, who's on? Is it John? Um, who's on the twenty? Anyway, you hand them a twenty-dollar U.S. dollar, and they said, "Oh yeah, we don't, we don't take those. You got to get this other Sam's dollar or whatever." Um, a few of us went to to uh, Honduras, right? Uh, we had to to exchange our American dollars for what? What is it called? The limp, limpira, or something like that. I still have a couple of them at the house, um, and and so. We had to exchange it because some of them would take U.S. dollars, but it was just easier to do down there. The priest actually re, uh, required a form of currency called the Tyrian shekel, which featured an engraving of Hercules on one side and an eagle on the other, which is kind of strange because they didn't want the Roman currency because it had the emperor, and they said that was blasphemy, an engraved image, but they were willing to accept an image of a foreign god? I don't know. Anyways, that's what they preferred. Perhaps it's a related note that Judas was probably paid in these type of coins to betray Jesus. So, of course, there had to be people that exchanged the money, right? Money exchangers. 
and, and, and like many forms of commerce, there were probably some who were charging a much higher price for the exchange than was needed. Right? Because the money changers aren't just changing for even for even. Right? They're, they're, they're changing so that they make a little money. I mean, that's, that's their business. And that's fine. But more than likely, as with most things, somebody was probably charging more. And it's, it's very tempting that if somebody starts charging more and other people realize they're charging more, then you're going to start charging more. You're going to start charging more and charging more and charging more. And kind of everybody starts charging more. And now people are being take, taken advantage of. Right? Because we're much more likely to pay for, to pay something more, pay more for something at a special event. You ever bought a hot dog at a baseball game? How much is, how much does it cost? Huh? Too much. Yeah, whatever. It's like nine or ten dollars probably. When you can go to like at least one convenience store around here and get a hot dog for like a dollar and a half, two dollars, I wouldn't necessarily advise that because sometimes they, you know, I mean, you get what you pay for in those circumstances too. However, hot dogs are not ten dollars a piece. All right. Um, so you have this whole system that is approved by the religious leaders of them accepting a coin for the temple tax and for buying animals for sacrifice that has a foreign god depicted on it despite the laws of against it. But then you have the money changers who are very likely taking advantage of the circumstances and making money off of the people who are coming to practice their religious beliefs. And the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who we have been guilty at times of sanitizing and kind of kid-proofing, who we may invoke to make our lives easier or better, this man shows us that he might be more than we bargained for. In an unhinged moment, Jesus drives out the money changers and the merchants from the temple. This is a thing that had went on every year. It was an accepted practice and the people accepted it. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and says, not today. We're not doing this today. The zeal for his father's house consumes him and he takes a passionate action to make it right. The whole system was corrupt. The religious rulers who used their laws like a form of control, the money changers who extorted the people, the Roman Empire who oppressed all of, all, all of them, all taking advantage of the people and Jesus was not happy. We may look at this moment and it's uncomfortable. We're used to seeing the fair-haired European feature Jesus depicted here. Can you go ahead and pull up that picture? We're seeing this Jesus in our churches, in, in, our, in our media. Um, this was actually painted and marketed by a man named Walter Salmon in the 1940s. It's been reproduced over a billion times, estimated, in the 20th century alone. Uh, we don't think about this guy chasing people with a whip. We don't think about that Jesus being consumed by zeal for the people. He looks very peaceful. He looks very put together. You ever like been enraged at something? And like when you're done, you feel like I've, every time I've ever done that, I feel like, who am I? I don't even know who I am. My heart's beating. I'm breathing heavy. My hair's probably all over the place. That Jesus wouldn't do that. That Jesus don't get dirty. Don't feel like he does anyways. And yes, I'm aware that this more unhinged aspect of Jesus has also been marketed and used by those who promote toxic masculinity in the church. Why is it, like Mary mentioned on Tuesday night at our discussion, that men's ministry involves guns or throwing axes and women's ministry involves quilting or reading books? 
I wouldn't mind a quiet discussion of a weighty topic myself as a guy. Maybe with a glass of something nice and a pipe or a cigar. And I know from experience that that Mary is pretty good at throwing axes and is a really good shot. That's why I stay on my toes, trying not to make a man. No, I'm just kidding. She would never do that. But anyways, this hard and rugged Jesus may not make us feel safe. And that's good. A life of faith is not meant to feel safe. Um, there's always an undercurrent of, of what if. What if I spent my whole life following God and it's not real? What if my belief about baptism or communion or inclusion is wrong and I have to answer to God for it one day? Well, the life that Jesus calls us to can never really feel comfortable or safe. It's really hard to reach a point of safety or comfort when we are constantly called to do unsafe and uncomfortable things like love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt also. In whatever form of discomfort or injury or hard time, Jesus says keep trusting, keep believing. It's not comfortable, it's not safe, but it's good. And then Jesus follows up his unhinged behavior with some unhinged words. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will build it again. This temple, Jesus, that's been in construction for 46 years, you're going to build it back up in three days. Are you sure about that? Are you sure that's a statement you want to make? That's wild. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. Jesus was always talking like, in, in like these, I don't know, secretive ways. And, and, and the disciples sometimes were looking at each other like, what's he talking about? We've never heard him say anything like this before. They're, they got to be, you got to imagine they're looking at the people around them like, I don't know what he's talking about right now. Um, I'll ask him later. You know, <laughs> maybe we can have an answer for you later. What does Jesus mean? Well, maybe he was talking about the, the real destruction of the temple that happened around 70 CE, or maybe he was referring to his own death and resurrection, which is what I believe, and that's what the disciples later came to believe that he was talking about. And there are times in Jesus' life that teach us how to relate to one another. There are beautiful pictures of life and the kingdom of God, and, and, and then there are other times like this one that have us kind of scratching our heads and trying to kind of figure out how it fits in. It's one of those odd-shaped puzzle pieces that doesn't can't seem to find it, so we sometimes maybe just put it to the side until we get further down the road. I'm sure the disciples maybe were having a moment of crisis at this point. What have we gotten ourselves into? And there have been times in my own life where I've asked that question, what have I gotten myself into? What is this heaviness in my chest, the need to do something, to help someone. I was uh, riding home uh, Friday afternoon. And I did not even think about this till just now. Uh, I was riding home Friday afternoon. Um, uh, Mom and Dad were on the way to our house with the kids. They pick them up after school for us. And it was raining. Friday was just a, a just kind of a nasty day. right? And, and my mom and dad had somewhere to go. And so I was had a, had a purpose. I had a time. I had a place to be somewhere. And I saw this guy like walking up the road. I was like, bro, what are you doing? It's, it's pouring cats and dogs right now. 
And I felt compelled. And, and this, is, this feels like a humble brag. I promise it's not. But it, it kind of applies to, to like give this guy a ride. But I couldn't because I had, I had commitments, had somewhere to go. So I was praying, God, to help, help somebody stop and give this man a ride. Um, but sometimes we go through those things. You ever had that? Like this, I, I need to do something. I want to do something. I want to help, but I don't know what. Following Jesus can, can lead us to those times right now. May lead us to ask questions like, if God is good and God is real and we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of churches in our country, um, why are we so divided? Why are we so divided, not only along racial lines, along uh, social class lines, politically we're divided. Why is there, why is there all this stuff that Jesus talked against? when we have so many people who follow him in our society? Why is there systemic racism, homophobia, transphobia, violence, genocide in Gaza, war in Ukraine? God, what are you calling me to do? I don't like this. And sometimes the answers never come. And, and I suspect that sometimes they never will at least on this side of life. But I hold on to hope like the disciples did because when I reach a point to where I am able to look back at the events that happened in my life, more often than not, I can see God's hand at work. Very rarely is it working in obvious ways, but I know that I've seen it. And the disciples too were able to look back at this moment and say, oh, we get it now. We understand what was happening. The temple was so much more than the building. The reasons for Jesus' behavior are more clear to us. We've seen so much since then. And they believed. And so where does that leave you and me today? What about our lives? What can we take from this like kind of odd picture of Jesus and say, okay, as a result, this week I'm going to whatever. Are we supposed to go Chasing people with whips and flipping over tables? Maybe. Probably not. But Jesus did. No, I'm kidding. But maybe. I'm never ruling that out. If ever, if now look, it's gonna have to be pretty extreme. If at ever at any point God says, Steve, get the whip. I'm like, yes, sir. I'm going right now. Just point them out. I don't think it's ever gonna happen, but it's kind of funny. Um but <laughs> But I think this passage and, and some others where Jesus is acting a little what we feel like might be out of character, but it's probably actually his character, have a roundabout way of helping us to secure our faith and understand it better at times. When our life feels unhinged, when things are happening that we can't control, maybe when we are overcome with a passion for God and compassion for people, we may feel erratic, unsure of what to do. We may feel uncomfortable and unsafe in our faith. With our heart beating in our chest, we might pick up the phone and call someone and ask for their forgiveness. Or forgive them if they've hurt us, and that's hard to do. It doesn't feel safe. Maybe we'll be called sometime to speak truth to power in the church and our lives, and that simply means something's happening in an organization or a group of people that's bigger than yourself, 
And sometimes it feels like I'm just going to sit here and just, you know, whatever. Sometimes we have to stand up and say, no, that's not right. We don't want to do that. Speaking out against a corrupt system, either in the government or a workplace or a friend group, is never easy. It's never easy to be a witness to or to initiate changes when they're necessary, but it's good. Whenever we can move forward in our faith, in spite of our doubts, it's not safe. It doesn't feel safe. Whenever we let our doubts spur us on to investigate our faith, in spite of our fears, it's not safe. Whenever we commit to following the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it's never safe, but it's good. And you may be here today and you may be in an uncomfortable place on your journey right now, your journey of faith. It doesn't feel safe. You don't know what to do. That's good. I mean, I know it doesn't feel good, but stay there. Keep trusting, keep hoping, keep asking. Wrestle with it. God is with you and He's going to help you see how it all worked out later. You may be scared to even start to follow Jesus. Like, Steve, I had been kind of like considering, you know, devoting, you know, starting to to stake some steps toward devoting my life to Jesus a little more. But now you're talking about Him not being safe and how that's good and that's really weird and I don't know how I feel about that. I get it. And the answer is, you do it because it's good. Like, it's really good. I know that's hard to understand sometimes. And, and, and it's kind of one of those things you have to be there. The only way to really get it is to go through it sometimes. But God is good, even when he doesn't feel safe. But wherever you are today in your spiritual journey, Jesus wants you to know him. And he wants you to know that his goodness is real, even if it doesn't feel safe. Like a baby beginning to take our first steps, he's offering his hand as we toddle along. Like a parent helping us to learn to ride a bike, he'll pick us up and help us get going again. It's not safe. Riding a bike is not safe. You're going to skin your knee. You're going to skin your elbow. Wear a helmet. That was never part of the promise. The promise was that he's good and he's there and he's present and he loves us in spite of ourselves. He's really good. You can trust him and you can follow him because he loves you and he cares for you. He's going to help you through the hard times. You can place your faith in Jesus today. I want to close with a short excerpt from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, One of my favorite books. Uh, If you've never read it, I would encourage it. Of course, written by C.S. Lewis. And it's special because it's an allegory for the kingdom of God. Right? It's like we're telling a story that's about God's kingdom, but we're not saying directly that it's God's kingdom, but it's the same. It's supposed to be the same thing. And in this story, the great lion, Aslan, creates the world and destroys evil. And Aslan, like Jesus, is not safe. But we can embrace him with confidence because of his goodness. And this is a conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and uh, Susan. Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Dan Clennon ends his thoughts on this passage by saying that the cleansing of the temple warns us of every false sense of security. Misplaced allegiances, religious presumption, pathetic excuses, smug self-satisfaction, spiritual complacency, nationalist zeal, political idolatry, and economic greed in the name of God are only some of the tables that Jesus would overturn today. Church should not be a place to reinforce my prejudices and illusions. Jesus disrupts what religion makes safe and cozy. He never once says, understand me. He says something far more radical. Follow me. And as we close, I'd love to pray with you in the back if you have anything you need prayer for, whether it's beginning a life in Christ for the first time or returning or something in between or something even, uh, even different. Or you can pray right where you are. Holy Spirit hears you and knows your heart. Whatever's in your way, whatever's making you feel unsafe, choose to follow Jesus, Jesus today. He promises to help you. God, thank you so much for Jesus who, in spite of sometimes feeling unsafe or calling us to do things that feel unsafe, is good. And He's there. He's present. Help us to embrace that today. Wherever we are, no matter what, no matter our doubts, no matter our fears, help us to trust that Jesus is good and that you love us. Be with us as we uh, go through this week, whatever, whatever obstacles are in our way or whatever opportunities we have to do good, give us strength to meet them. All these things I ask in my name. Amen.